Welcome to Talks at Advent. Today's episode is a talk given by Advent member Dale Brown entitled C.S. Lewis, Sacramental Imagination and the Romance of Orthodoxy. All right, well, I'll do some introduction stuff of kind of what I hope to accomplish tonight. Um, the title of the talk is C.S. Lewis and the Romance of Orthodoxy. And it may sound for those who are not Orthodox or for those who are Orthodox that possibly what I'm up to tonight is to somehow secretly chrismate C.S. Lewis as an Orthodox Christian and sneak him in through the back door. But that's not my intentions at all. Um, in some ways, this is really just looking at C.S. Lewis from an Orthodox perspective and not kind of on a theological plane, but on a personal plane. Now, C.S. Lewis, for a lot of Orthodox, I won't say the majority, but for a lot of Orthodox, has a special place in their lives. I know here at the Advent, C.S. Lewis has always been very important to us. When we were an Anglican parish, before coming into Orthodoxy, we always commemorated the death of C.S. Lewis on November 22nd. It was something that we thought was important, not just because we were Anglicans, but because of who C.S. Lewis was uh, in our lives, even before we knew what an Anglican was. I mean, when I was growing up as a Pentecostal, I would read C.S. Lewis and I would try to figure out what an Angelin was, because that's what I always thought it said, Angelin, um, and try to figure out like, what the heck does that mean? And I'd eventually just overlooked it because it kind of looked like Roman Catholic stuff every time I looked at it, and I didn't. I knew Roman Catholics were going to hell, so I just kind of went ahead and put that to the back of my mind and just pretended Lewis was a good Pentecostal. And then when I became non-denominational and started looking at church history and things, I kind of got interested in Lewis's uh, kind of church background, studied Anglicanism, and eventually became an Anglican in some part because of C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis in my personal life and then C.S. Lewis here at the Advent has always had a special place. And I think that's true for everyone who's been a part of the Advent, whatever stages uh, folks have come in and, and been a part of it, have found themselves in. Um, C.S. Lewis, of course, isn't someone who just Orthodox Christians celebrate. C.S. Lewis is kind of celebrated across denominational lines, right? You know, I was Pentecostal and loved C.S. Lewis. Stephen and Matt were Baptists growing up. They loved C.S. Lewis. I know of Presbyterians who love C.S. Lewis. I know of Methodists who've loved C.S. Lewis, even Roman Catholics who have loved C.S. Lewis. Interestingly enough, the one group that seemingly didn't have very much of a passion for C.S. Lewis were Anglicans, and that was a Another interesting thing I found out when I became Anglican is that there wasn't as much passion for C.S. Lewis in the Anglican church as there was in my evangelical church growing up. Um, in some ways, it was almost what Jesus said in John chapter 4 when he said, you know, the prophet has no honor in his own hometown. That seemingly is what C.S. Lewis had in, in Anglicanism. And that's also one reason why we at the Advent always found it important to try and remember and celebrate his life because we thought it was important to do so for the life of the parish. Now, it's true that there have been Orthodox Christians who've gotten a little hyperactive in their pursuit of trying to make C.S. Lewis seemingly more Orthodox than he was. And so I want to stay on the outside, uh, at the beginning, excuse me, 
Now, Lewis was born an Anglican, and he died an Anglican. And that's important because Lewis and Lewis's religion and Lewis's faith and everything that shaped him is something that I think is essential to who he is, and I think it's something that is essential to what makes Orthodox Christians, those who have an affinity toward him, actually gravitate toward him. If you remove Anglicanism from C.S. Lewis's life, I don't think you're going to have a C.S. Lewis. So we have to, at the outset of this talk, say that Anglicanism is something that is essential to C.S. Lewis's life and not just try to get past it so we can find some secret orthodoxy underneath. Though I do believe he was orthodox, little o, in his beliefs. And actually, I think that's a pointer as to why orthodox Christians have such a favorable, favorable view. Now, what kind of orthodox Christians have a favorable view? Is it just Christians that grew up in the evangelical world or Christian converts? Not at all. Orthodox Christians from cradle to convert have found a place and an appreciation for C.S. Lewis. Andrew Walker, which some of you may know or may not know, a theologian and a scholar in, in England, actually started a society or a center called the C.S. Lewis Center for the Study of Religion and Modernity from 1985 to 1995. Under the direction of his bishop, Metropolitan Anthony Bloom, and Metropolitan Anthony was the chairman and the trustee of that uh, center, as well as uh, other uh, Orthodox bishops. Now, that society eventually, or that center of study eventually merged with another society that no longer exists. But Andrew Walker had a huge appreciation for C.S. Lewis, and so did a lot of the English uh, Orthodox uh, community in the 80s and the 90s. Walker commenting on kind of the place of C.S. Lewis in English Orthodoxy said there were two types of books in his Russian cathedral that he would visit and was a member of, two types of books. You'd walk into the bookstore and there'd be a whole bunch of books on Holy Orthodoxy, or there is Russian Orthodoxy or Orthodoxy in general. And then there would be a whole other set of books, all of them by C.S. Lewis. Again, uh, Bishop uh, Timothy Ware, Metropolitan, Callistos, uh, has written a whole article on C.S. Lewis called An Anonymous Orthodox, where he actually was looking at C.S. Lewis from the perspective of an Orthodox Christian. And he actually got the title, again, from Andrew Walker, who had a luncheon in London with a bishop from Constantinople, and the bishop was wanting a copy of Lewis's Space Trilogy, out, specifically out of the Silent Planet, and in passing says, you know, I want this book uh, because we in Constantinople consider Lewis to be an anonymous orthodox. Now again, Lewis was not an anonymous orthodox. Lewis was a devout Anglican. But I mention all those stories to show that it isn't just our small parish here with a bunch of converts from the Baptist and Pentecostal traditions that have an appreciation for C.S. Lewis. There is a deep appreciation in the Orthodox world for, for C.S. Lewis. And so as we continue to uh, move forward as a parish, 
C.S. Lewis will always have a special place for us here, and he will always continue to be an important part of our journey uh, as we move forward as the Advent. So what is it about C.S. Lewis? What is it about this thoroughly Western man, this Anglican, this uh, man who studied medieval and Renaissance literature, and that seemingly had more of an affinity for Western European culture than he ever would for an Eastern Orthodox culture. What is it about C.S. Lewis that draws Orthodox Christians from Russia to Greek to British to American? What is it that draws them over to have some sense of a common place or fellowship with C.S. Lewis? And I think we could look at his works and see some things, but ultimately I'm gonna focus on his life. And to start at the beginning of one's life, that was 60 years or so, it's going to be hard for me to get to the end of his life in 20 minutes, but I'm going to give it the best shot I've got. He was born in 1898. And he was born in basically Northern Ireland. And his family were devout Anglicans and thus had him baptized in the Anglican church. His early life was a very uh, troubled one. He had a lot of tragedy in his life. At the age of four, one of his closest friends, which happened to be his dog, at the time died. And that left an indelible mark on C.S. Lewis's life. Matter of fact, his dog's name was Jaxie. And from that point on, from the age of four, he made up his mind that from that day forward, he was gonna be called Jaxie in honor of his dog, from which we'd get his friends calling him Jack later on in life. And while that may sound endearing to a four-year-old, that's something that was traumatic, to lose someone so close to you that you would take their name. Five years later, C.S. <clears throat> Lewis's mother would die from cancer, and Lewis would be shipped off to a boarding school where, once again, he did not have the best experience. As a matter of fact, shortly after he was shipped off to that boarding school, it was shut down because of so many students being removed from it, and the headmaster was sentenced to a psychiatric ward. Lewis would study at various schools from the age of 9 to 15, never really reconnecting with his father because his father seemingly never recovered from the loss of his wife. And by the time he was 15, he would have gone through so many schools because he just couldn't seemingly fit in. But his father, at the age of 15, got him a tutor, actually a tutor of his, from his, his youth. His name was Kirkpatrick. In a lot of his works, he calls him the Great Knock. And Lewis, from that point on, will study under Kirkpatrick, who happened to be an ex-Calvinist, very stern ex-Calvinist, atheist, who instilled in C.S. Lewis a form of rational atheism, of which Lewis was ready to receive by this time. Now, I wish we could spend more time on the tragedies, but just know that Lewis, by the time he was probably 10, had already emotionally and spiritually kind of accepted a, various, a kind of an atheism. He, didn't, he wasn't a Christian in his, what he believed, at least. 
So when Kirkpatrick came along and offered to tutor him, and he excelled greatly, and Kirkpatrick literally told him, there is no place for Christianity in your tutoring, in these lessons. He found a boy and a teenager who was ready to receive it. And I think some of us can understand. Now, Lewis, at the same time, while he was giving up his Christianity, developed a huge love and appreciation for mythology. Prior to even studying with Kirkpatrick, he had developed a kind of a love for what he called the northerness, northernness, the Nordic mythologies. And he read a lot of the poems and stories of all the Norse gods and the, and the beauty about creation, and he identified with a lot of what he was reading. Under Kirkpatrick, he would have been introduced, and he was introduced, to the Greek myths as he studied Greek and Latin. Under Kirkpatrick, he was introduced to all the mythologies of, of, of the Greco-Roman world. And he, again, loved the myths. He loved the stories. And when he was accepted into Oxford, he began to actually study some of the Celtic and Irish mythologies and began to develop a love for that. So it's an interesting thing that while C.S. Lewis was giving up his religion, seemingly so, or at least as he thought he was, he was once acquiring this love for all the old religions of Europe. And it's something that even Kirkpatrick, um, the great knock, instilled in him. And little did he know when he was doing this, I think understandably so by the guiding of the Holy Spirit, ironically, that he was laying, laying the, the landmine that would eventually explode back in Lewis's life and bring Lewis back to his faith. And that's jumping ahead just a little bit. Lewis got accepted into Oxford, and when he went to Oxford, shortly after being accepted, World War I broke out, and again, Lewis was faced with tragedy. He saw two of his closest friends killed, not by enemy fire, but by friendly fire. A bomb that was launched landed on him and his friends. He himself was injured, and his two uh, friends that were with him died. And again, Lewis would reflect on that in his life and say he was very angry at God for not existing. Because of all the tragedy that he experienced in his life, he felt it a great injustice. And if there was only a God who could have made things right to begin with, he wouldn't have had to have gone through all the tragedy he went through. Tragedy shaped C.S. Lewis's life. And it was a huge part of why the young Anglican Lewis become, became the young atheist Lewis. Now, I don't want to leave the impression that I think Lewis somehow wasn't a Christian or that was somehow away from Christ at this time. Yes, he was an atheist. But I do not believe that this atheism was a rejection of God. On the contrary, 
I think very much like Father Sarah from Rosa says, atheism is a spiritual condition. It's a part of the longing of the heart towards God. And I think that this was something that C.S. Lewis was experiencing. I don't like ever taking someone, like one bit of someone's life, like if someone is no longer claims to be a Christian or if someone's struggling with doubts or trials or something's going on in their lives and somehow isolate that from their whole lives. We should never do that. And so I think just as much as any other part of Lewis's life, this moment was shaping Lewis, informing him, and being used by the Holy Spirit to make Lewis who he was later on in life. And I think this is part of the things that we'll see kind of bring Orthodox Christians, and not just Orthodox, Christians of all denominations, to appreciate Lewis for who he is. Because if Lewis hadn't gone through this, if Lewis hadn't gone through tragedy, and hadn't met up with his tutor, there's a chance he probably would have never gotten the education and formal logic that he has that so many evangelicals love when they think of C.S. Lewis as an apologist. And we definitely could, well, I won't say definitely. We can at least say that while Lewis may not have been embracing the creedal forms of Christianity, he was definitely opening his heart up to the gods of Europe, many of whom died and rose again in the mythologies, and that will actually cause his heart to feel something when he definitely didn't want to feel anything at all. It was those mythologies that softened his heart and that made him feel great affection when so much of his life seemed to be tragedy. So I'm not wanting to sit here and say that Lewis's atheism is something we should skip over. And I think there's something that we could actually spend a whole couple hours on just in this alone. But nevertheless, we have to move on. So Lewis, of course, does not stay an atheist. He begins in his 20-somethings as someone who's gone through war and at the age of 25 ends up at Magdalen College and while he's there meets up with a couple other English and literature professors. One you may know of, his name was J.R.R. Tolkien and he begins to develop a friendship with these professors. Now Lewis was an argumentative type of fellow. He loved to drink and he loved to smoke and he loved to have conversations and have long walks and conversations about various things. He wasn't someone who was shy. And so him and Tolkien and others like Hugo Davis and, and eventually other inklings would meet up and they would talk about literature. They would talk about mythology. They would talk about all these things that they had in common. And then they would talk about the things that they disagreed with. Inevitably, Tolkien and Hugo Dyson would have a huge impact on C.S. Lewis's life. Lewis um, would have been reading things that they suggested, and one of the things that he read that really troubled him was The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. And after reading that, he became very troubled. This is just one of the things that troubled him. But after reading that, he, began, he became very troubled because G.K. Chesterton laid out an entire history of pagan 
uh, religion leading up to Christianity. This was something he hadn't heard of. It's something that a lot of Christians probably don't think about. Most of us focus on, of course, the revelation that we have received from God and, and that, the, that has come down to us from the Israelites and the Jews. But Chesterton saw all of human history, all of the world's religions, coming to this great point in time at the Incarnation. And it troubled Lewis greatly. Matter of fact, it was what ultimately led Lewis from, becoming an, from being an atheist to being a theist. He would say about one night when he was thinking about the everlasting man, he says, quote, you must picture me alone in that room in Magdalen College, night after night feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him who I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and I knelt and prayed. Perhaps that night the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Now that was his convert, conversion story to believing in God. He has not yet come to accept Christ and the story of Christ. But God had crept in through the cracks and crevices of the conversations that he was having with his fellow professors. It would not take long for Lewis to eventually come to faith, and the way he did it is quite actually not very extraordinary at all. He had a conversation with Tolkien in Hugo, and the conversation went something along these lines. They're talking about mythology. They're talking about probably, and I'm, there's some speculating here. Um, I can't tell you exactly which mythologies they were talking about. Maybe they were bringing up the Norse ones. Maybe they were talking about the Greek ones. Maybe they were talking about Roman. Who knows? But they're talking about mythology. And Lewis says, Christ is a myth. Now, for Lewis, that's not something to say that Christ isn't true. As a matter of fact, the thing that has meant the most to Lewis for well over a decade has been mythology. The thing which spoke to his heart, which, which opened his eyes to the beauty of the world when everything else was tragic, was mythology. To put Christ on the same plane as, the, as mythology wasn't some kind of put down. It was an elevation in his heart of Christ to the level of mythology. For Lewis saw in mythology something true, maybe not fact, but something true. But that's when I think Tolkien knew he had him. And he responds to Lewis, ah, yes, Christ is a myth, but he's a myth made real. Christ is what all the world mythologies have been talking about. It wasn't just the Hebrews who were telling this story. All the stories of the dying and rising gods were about Christ. All of the world knew the story that Christ would come into the world and save it. They all told them in different ways, but they were all pointing to Christ. And a few short days later, 
Lewis will be walking to the zoo with his brother. And he said, I started out that journey as a theist. And by the time I'd gotten there, I had accepted that Jesus Christ was God. No warm and fuzzies, no big lights in the sky. A simple surrender to the working of the Holy Spirit, which had begun in his life, I believe, at the moment of his baptism when he was an infant and had been carrying him on all those years. There's a lot I wish I could say about this part of Lewis's life. This, of course, is usually where a lot of, well, at least, let me speak for myself, this is where I usually ended with C.S. Lewis's life, his conversion. And then the bits after about how he always took on people in the Socratic club and was a great apologist. And this, this is kind of where all of my story of C.S. Lewis ended. But of course, that isn't where C.S. Lewis's spiritual journey, <clears throat> excuse me, spiritual journey ended. Lewis will continue to grow in his faith, like all of us do, right? Lewis will continue to grow and mature in his faith, and I think it's in that part of his life that a lot of us who, are, who have come to orthodoxy because of C.S. Lewis and those of us who maybe have born, been born in orthodoxy can see in Lewis something we identify with. So, what was C.S. Lewis's Christianity like shortly after coming back into the church? Well, it started off very individualistic. He, he said he tried to do Christianity by himself, essentially, which we all kind of do from time to time. We all try to live out our lives by ourselves. Lewis sat in his room with theology books and read them, and only infrequently would go to church, and even less infrequently would receive communion. Oh, by the way, the church he went back to was his Anglican church. He would receive communion on high feast days like Christmas and Easter, and he would read his Bible, particularly the Psalms, and he developed a prayer life, which I think is actually extraordinary. He developed a deep prayer life during this time. Something I think a lot of evangelical Christians can identify with as well, as well as Orthodox Christians. But eventually, Lewis's spiritual journey will take him into the heart of the church. It'll take him into the life of the church, as it is experienced in the Anglican Communion. Now, just like his conversion, it won't be something that comes easy because he actually just didn't like going to an Anglican church. Uh, he didn't think too highly of much of the preaching he heard. <clears throat> At some point, he, he made the comment that there was probably going to come a time when the sheep were going to have to evangelize the shepherds, and uh, prophetically so. He, I think he was right. Um, as I said, he didn't care too much for going to church to receive communion. He thought communion was something you had to do, but it, was, it wasn't something he felt in his heart he should do, per se, except that it was an obligation as a Christian to do it. He really disliked hymnology. He really hated the hymns of the church. He didn't like the singing. As a matter of fact, he said that all the hymns of the church were to him like fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. And, and so he just wasn't too impressed with church life. But again, he knew as a Christian 
that he had a holy obligation to be a part of the life of the church. And eventually he plugged himself into the life of the church and his faith began to grow. Now, I want to take just a moment and I want to tell you about something that happened about this time. So I'm skipping a decade because once again, you don't want to be here for another three hours. Lewis's faith will grow, but it'll grow slowly. But for the first decade or so of his life, he kind of stayed in that sphere of religion. He wasn't, you know, too, too enthralled with church life. He wasn't too enthralled with things. He did have a deep prayer life. He did have a deep appreciation for the, the theologians of the church. But something happened at the end of like the 1930s and the beginning of the 1940s that seemed to be a catalyst for Lewis to kind of mature even more into, a, into something that I'll describe in a minute called Anglo-Catholicism. And I think there were two parts to this. At some point between the late 1930s and early 1940s, there's not a specific date I can give you, C.S. Lewis runs into a couple by the name of Nicholas, Mr. and Mrs. Nicholas Zernov. And if I'm not pronouncing that right, it's because I'm not Russian. I can barely pronounce English names correctly. But he runs into this couple, and they become really good friends. Now, this couple is a part of a larger community of Russian immigrants who are fleeing the persecution of communist Russia and the Bolshevik Revolution, and they're fleeing to England. And this couple, the Zernovs, were professors in Russia, and of course they gravitated to the college centers in England. And one of the things that they found shocked them. The Zernov family found a liturgical, seemingly Catholic, and at this time the Church of England was seemed to be very what we call high church, very Catholic, devout in some places, um, church that had a hierarchy with bishops and priests and deacons, and at this time had a growing monastic tradition. The Zernovs found in England a church that was Catholic and seemingly Orthodox theologically, not Eastern Orthodox, just Orthodox, but also wasn't under the patriarch of the West, the Pope. And that intrigued them, so much so that they set up a society called the Society of St. Alban and St. Sergius to help Anglicans and Orthodox Christians get to know each other because up until this time in history, there wasn't a lot of interaction between these two very old churches, the Church of the British Isles and the Church in Russia. There had been, been some contact between them, but not a lot. And so they established this society, and Lewis was a part of that society. As a matter of fact, Lewis gave a talk to the St. Alban St. Sergius Society called Membership. And you can find that talk, and uh, I believe it's The Weight of Glory, a collection of essays that he has, on what it meant to be a member of the church. It's called Membership. Lewis's interactions with the Zernoff family, I think, was part of what allowed 
this Ulster Protestant Anglican from Northern Ireland who had a lot of probably, shall we say, anti-Roman Catholic biases by blood, not by theology, to start thinking about what we'd call the sacramental life in a robust way. I mean, you, you have to understand when I say he had anti-Catholic biases, it was something rooted in his, in his genes, basically. And, it, you know, there's the old story, there was a Hindu in Northern Ireland, and uh, an Irishman came up, to, came up to him and asked him, are you a Catholic Hindu or a Protestant Hindu? I mean, that's how, that's how much the identities were rooted in the, in the separations of the folks there. And I think that was a bone of contention, really, between C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien, who was a devout Roman Catholic. Tolkien wanted him to become a Roman Catholic, and Lewis was adamant that he was not going to do so. But I believe Lewis's interactions with the Zernoff family opened him up, and it's speculation. Once again, this is speculation, but I think it's informed speculation, so at least it's not gossip. It opened him up to the possibility that also there could be a church out there that was fully sacramental and fully able to embrace the fullness of the faith and not have some of the things that go on with him as far as his uh, background goes, hang-ups with the, with the Latin church. Now, there's a second thing that happened, and I don't know which came first. It's kind of the chicken or the egg. There's something else that happens at this time. And what happens is, is Lewis... Um, finds himself drawn to a monastic community in the Church of England called the Cowley Fathers or the Society of St. John the Evangelist. And he takes on for himself a spiritual father by the name of, um, let's see, what was his name? Father Walter Adams, Father Walter Adams. And Father Walter Adams was very much a high churchman. Now, this society was formed in the early 20th century, and it was a society of, of, of lay monastics and celibate priests who devoted themselves to the life of the church and devoted themselves to embracing the fullness of the faith within the Anglican communion. And so Father Walter was coming at this thing from a particular perspective. And Lewis eventually will have said of Father Walter that he was his spiritual father. Now, we know that Lewis began corresponding with Father Walter in October of 1940. That's where he mentions in his, uh, one of his letters to a friend that he had started talking to Father Walter. And that would carry on for about 15 years or so. And Father Walter, and I think as well as C.S. Lewis's interactions with the Zernoff family, who were very close friends of his, as well as his interactions with the Society of St. Alban and St. Sergius, I think really had an impact on Lewis that is deserving of someone's attention who has the time and the money and the ability to do scholarship on it, which is not me. So I just give, you know, 20-minute talks that take 45 minutes. But what happened with Lewis? So remember I said C.S. Lewis did not have a particular care for the sacraments, didn't have a particular kind of affection for the Psalms or from the hymns, and he didn't have this love. Well, between 1940 and to the day he died, something, it just radically changed. 
Lewis became what would be, uh, is what I would call a sacramental Anglican Christian, an Anglo-Catholic for all intents and purposes. Lewis will have seen baptism as essential to the faith. In mere Christianity, he says so. I mean, during World War II, when he's given his talks on what it means to be mere Christians, he will say, there are three things that spread the Christ life to us. Baptism, belief, and the mysterious action called Holy Communion. That is a far cry from Lewis, who sits in his office avoiding church and avoiding Holy Communion, only taking it a couple times a year just to be obedient. Lewis <clears throat> will see confirmation in First Communion. within That's kind of how it went down in the Church of England and still does in some Anglican quarters as a very important part of all Christians' lives. He actually was a godfather to several children who made their first communion, who received confirmation, made their first communion. If you want to um, read a really good letter, I think it's something that all of us should read on what it means to be a Christian. You should read his little note that he wrote to one of his goddaughters, Sarah, before she was confirmed and received her first communion. It's a wonderful little bit of advice that he gave her. And as, as a matter of fact, not only did he become a godfather to several children in, in the Church of England, he himself lamented that he had not taken seriously his confirmation when he was confirmed as a young child and how he had not realized the full weight of what it was when he received his first communion. It was one of the things that he considered to be a huge tragedy in his life from a spiritual perspective. Of course, Holy Communion became central to C.S. Lewis's life. He will have started going to Mass or Divine Liturgy on a regular basis, at least weekly, sometimes daily when he was at college. And under the direction of his spiritual father, Father Adams. And he will have described Holy Communion in this way. Yet I find no difficulty in believing that the veil between the worlds, nowhere else, for me, so opaque to the intellect, is nowhere else so thin and permeable to divine operation. Speaking of Holy Communion. Here a hand from the hidden country touches not only my soul, but my body. Here the prig, the don, the modern, in me have no privilege over the savage or the child. Here is big medicine and strong magic. The command, after all, was taken neat, not taken understand. Lewis's love for the Eucharist was something that came upon him and he matured into. And it's something that he lived by after he realized how great an honor it was to come and receive truly the body and blood of Christ. And this, of course, was also, I think, probably made clear to him by his spiritual father and by interactions with Orthodox Christians. Lewis will have ex honestly had come to accept the sacramental priesthood, again, under Father Walter Adams, 
If you want to read some of his thoughts on what it meant to be a priest, look up the uh, the essay Priestesses in the Church, where he gives kind of a clear example of what he thinks the sacramental priesthood looks like of bishops, priests, and deacons. Lewis eventually encountered in his wife's life and his own the sacrament of extreme unction. When his wife was dying of cancer, he called an Anglican priest who was known as someone who was very devout, presumably not in England. I think he actually was doing work elsewhere, and he called him up, a priest who actually believed in the miraculous workings of, of Christ in this life. And he had the priest lay hands on his wife and give her communion. And she seemingly was at her deathbed, but miraculously was healed and lived with C.S. Lewis many more years after that. And he himself received holy unction on his deathbed before he died. Lewis will have come to accept the place of iconography in the church. Matter of fact, there is another uh, society called the uh, Society of Saint, or excuse me, the, uh, kind of a, it's not actually a society, it's actually a place of learning at Oxford called St. Gregory's House, established probably sometime in the mid-1950s uh, by the Zernoff family. And Lewis gave another talk to that society. And once again, it was another society dedicated to ecumenical relations between Anglicans and Orthodox. And the title of his talk was A Toy, An Icon, and a Work of Art on Iconography. Unfortunately, that is lost to us in history. We have the name, we know it happened, we know where it happened, but we don't have the actual article itself, unfortunately. I keep hoping that someone will have a divine dream that will point out where that article is somewhere in Lewis's paperwork and we can find it because I, I just believe it would be fascinating to read. However, though we don't, don't have that article or that talk that he gave, we do know, or at least I would say we know, that Lewis's uh, view of iconography found its place in his, in his works. I think of, for instance, The Voyage of the Darn Treader. When at the beginning of that story, the children are in a room and they're arguing over Narnia. There's some who don't believe that the children had gone to Narnia. And one of the children sees a picture on the wall. And while they're arguing, the child says, I think, I mean, that looks like a Narnian ship. And then the picture seemingly starts moving. Everyone else is arguing, but the but the child is like kind of fixed on it and, it and everything starts moving and it begins to move. And instead of the children and everyone being sucked into the image, on the contrary, Narnia spills over into their world so that Narnia flows out and they find themselves on the Narnian ship in Narnia. And I can think of no better way of describing kind of a theology of iconography than that right there, where the glory of the Lord from which those images point fills our world and welcomes us into the presence of God. And here it was the presence of Narnia, but you see the correlation. Toward the end of his life, Lewis will have come to believe in praying with and for the dead. 
seeing in that, the reason I bring that up, uh, a belief in a deep communal nature of Christians, that we as Christians are not isolated individuals, and just as much as death has no claim on us in the love of God for us, death has no claim on us in our love for one another. So Lewis regularly prayed toward the end of his life for those who were dying. Now, where did all this kind of stuff come from? Again, I think there's two sources. One I can point to and give you citation for. Another one is my speculation. One was, of course, his spiritual father. And Lyle Dorset, who's an Anglican, actually did some interviews with people who knew C.S. Lewis and knew Father Walter Adams. And this is what he says he, he found. This is kind of from an oral history. That C.S. Lewis met with Father Walter Adams every Friday, unless one of them was out of town, after receiving and going and receiving uh, excuse me, confession, sacramental confession from him for the first time. Father Adams' impact on Lewis during the dozen years they met was unquestionably transformational. Adams, Father Adams, was an Anglo-Catholic, and he gently but purposely led Lewis to become a high churchman. Thanks to Adams, Lewis learned to love the, litur the liturgy, the 1662 prayer book, the daily office, and praying through the Psalter each month. It was Adams who helped Lewis learn that the Eucharist was more than a memorial and a symbol. Indeed, Adams helped the increasingly popular writer experience real presence in the Blessed Sacrament. Adams introduced C.S. Lewis to Richard Benson, the founder of the Society of St. John the Evangelist. And from Benson's works, Lewis gradually gained a longing for holiness and admiration for pre-6th century church fathers, those are the, the church fathers, you know, the first 500 years or so of the life of the church. A heart for evangelism and a soul, transform mystic, a soul transformational mystical knowledge of what it means to be in Christ. To be in Christ. I think we can see in Lewis's works all of those things kind of taking place. If you read his fiction and nonfiction you'll see Lewis's life kind of transformation, transformation happening right in front of you if you read his works. Brother Walter had that huge impact, but also I believe the Zernoff family had as well. As Lewis continued to engage with them and continued to talk to them about what he was experiencing in his own life. And there was a deep relationship between the two that would carry on So where do we find ourselves with C.S. Lewis? We find a man who loved the fathers of the church, a man who was deeply sacramental, a man who believed in the communion of the saints, an apologist for the faith, as many of us kind of growing up in evangelical circles loved and admired, a man of prayer, a man who honestly wanted to do away with all the divisions of the church. He didn't, he didn't like the divisions of the church. He wanted the unity of the church. A man who had an admiration for mythologies, 
and a formal education in logic which helped him cut through a lot of the mires and arguments of the day. He was a man steeped in Western tradition, but he was a man who was deeply orthodox, little though. He's someone I believe that Orthodox Christians can look at and see and identify with precisely because of those things, because of his spiritual journey, because of the love that he had for Christ. And I don't even have the time to talk about his views on deification and glorification, which is one of the central parts of Orthodox theology. Nor do I have time to even talk about his views on salvation theology, atonement, and his views of ransom theology, which also fits in with much of the Eastern fathers of the church. But Lewis is this great man who loved the Lord deeply and had his heart prepared, I believe, by the Holy Spirit to enter into the deep mysteries of the faith which had taken root in Western Europe very early on. And the faith which Lewis embraced was the faith, I believe, that he came to embrace was the faith that had taken root in Europe at the time of the apostles and continued to grow to this day. And which, for those of us who are Orthodox, we tend to see expressed fully within our own church. The Zernoff family would remain close friends with Lewis to the day he died. As a matter of fact, they visited Lewis on his deathbed. And the day that the Zernoff family uh, had heard that Lewis had reposed in the Lord, uh, Mrs. Zernoff wove for Lewis a Russian cross out of flowers, a kind of a traditional way of respect in the, in the Russian Orthodox Church. And they went, as only a few folks were invited, his closest friends, they went to his funeral at the Anglican Church. Now, Warney, which was Lewis's brother, um, he, didn't, he, he did not want anything like pictures, no incense, no nothing fancy. He simply wanted his brother's casket in the church and a, and a clergyman saying the prayers, and that was it. Unfortunately, that would mean that the cross that Mrs. Zernoff had woven had to stay outside the church. However, unfortunately, Lewis's brother uh, was so brokenhearted over the loss of his brother that he ended up not being able to make it to his own brother's funeral. And so the church warden asked the Zernoff family to bring the Russian cross inside the parish and to place it in front of Lewis's casket during this whole service. After the service, the church warden picked up the cross, laid it on Lewis's coffin, and they processed out of the church with this. And this is how Andrew Walker, remember the scholar we talked about at the very beginning, he interviewed Mrs. Zernoff before she passed away. And this is what he said when thinking about all of this. So there we have it. <clears throat> Who would have thought it? Jack Lewis was buried under a Russian cross of white flowers 
beneath an English November sky. And in their distinct ways of all of Christendom's divided churches were represented there. When it must have seemed that for a moment there was a synergy of heaven and earth, a suspension of time, an instance of big magic. When all, when, when that other country was fleetingly transported to their own. Lewis, this Anglican Lewis, who had a deep friendship with Christians across denominations, had a deep friendship with this Orthodox couple and with Orthodox Christianity. And I think that that appreciation was mutually applied from both sides. The Orthodox Zernoff family and those in their circle appreciated Lewis and Lewis appreciated them. And I think that friendship has continued on for those who find themselves as Orthodox Anglicans and those who are Orthodox Christians. And there's something I think that we all can learn about uh, or seeing in the other Christ. And also something we can learn following Lewis that our life in Christ is a journey. And where we find ourselves now might not be where we end up. Because after all, like Lewis, I find myself as probably one of the most reluctant converts to orthodoxy in all of Atlanta. And yet when I die, God willing, I too will be processed with a liturgy very familiar to Lewis's, but with a cross probably shaped in the form of a Russian cross. To the glory of God, our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our God is one. Amen. Amen.